Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 18th of June with me, Ian Welsh. I was at the final conference in Innovation Forum's spring series this week and coming up shortly is an extract from a conference session where Tracy Cambridge from Thai Union, Dave Robb from Cargill, Erin Priddle from the Marine Stewardship Council and Mark Zimmering from the Nature Conservancy join me to talk about how the seafood sector should respond to market concerns and climate change. And recently I caught up with the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre's Felicitas Weber to talk about the latest Know the Chain benchmark research into forced labour in apparel sector company supply chains. That's all to come, along with information about the latest new event from Innovation Forum. No news this week, that will return next time. The Innovation Forum team is working on our Autumn Conference programme. First out the gate on the 28th and 29th of September is the Future of Climate Action US event, focusing on how to tackle greenhouse gases and supply chains. Already signed up as speakers and panellists are senior representatives from Kellogg, Alaska Airlines, AB InBev, PepsiCo, Oxham America and more. To save $400 in tickets, you can register now at a special launch rate as long as you do this by close on Friday 18th of June. And just launched is the new Future of Plastics event on the 13th and 14th of October. We'll have two days of frank and open debate with leading brands about how to reach stretching targets. Panellists from Unilever, Iceland, Coca-Cola European Partners, The Body Shop and Ecover are among the experts already confirmed. If you register by 25th of June, you can save £300 on conference passes. I thoroughly enjoyed the sessions at this week's Future of Food conference, and it was great to virtually bump into some podcast listeners during the networking sessions. Coming up now is an extract from a session from the event where I was joined by Tracy Cambridge, Responsible Sourcing Europe at Thai Union, Erin Priddle, Northern European Regional Director for the Marine Stewardship Council, Mark Zimmering, Director for the Large Scale Fisheries Programme at the Nature Conservancy, and Dave Robb, who leads the Sea Further Sustainability Programme at Cargill. We join the session as I'm about to ask Erin about her thoughts on the challenges for the sector associated with a changing climate and how the industry should address these effectively. Erin from MSC, perhaps I can turn to you first. What are the challenges that you see associated with a changing climate and what should the sector be doing to address these effectively? This is something that's been, I think, emerging as a big trend and important issue in this world for quite some time now. And I think, you know, one thing is clear, the evidence is mounting and it's very apparent that climate change is having an impact on species distributions. We are seeing this gradual this trend of species moving uh, northward in response to climate impacts. As we get this northward distribution of fish species, you have to think about that in the context of management systems. And you also have to think about that in the context, not just of management, but of international management and the responsibility that we all have in terms of ensuring that stocks are harvested in accordance to scientific advice. Now, as the Marine Stewardship Council, we have three key principles. I'm sure a lot of people on this call know about that, so I won't go into detail. But a couple of those relate to, one, setting really robust harvest strategies and harvest control rules that help protect the stocks into the future. And then another one is linked to the governance and the regulatory management, the setup of fisheries management systems. And so when you have this changing stock distribution, and then you have stocks that really love to do this, these big mover species like the pelagic fisheries. And so to add a little bit of context to this, I'm gonna give an example of the Northeast Atlantic pelagic fisheries. And so we've seen documentation by ICES and others of, you know, the accelerated shift in these species and then what the managers and the coastal states responsible for their management and their protection are faced with in terms of getting management in line with stock advice. 
And so unfortunately, we've seen this play out in the management framework. We've seen the mackerel first get suspended from the Marine Stewardship Council program in 2019, unable to reach attack agreement in line with scientific advice. And then after that, in 2020, we had Atlanta Scandian herring and also blue whiting fall out of the program. So when you think about the supply chain impact and you think about the rigor of a program like the Marine Stewardship Council and also the supply chain demand for verification of sustainability, these are big issues. These pelagics represent the biggest biomass, as far as I know anyway, in North Europe. And they were all part of a program, all feeding a global supply chain for certification. And when they're out of the program, that creates a big problem and a big question mark about their future and sustainability of them. Well, some might say, yeah, well, their biomass is actually okay right now. What our program is saying is not about today, it's about the future as well. And so it's really important as part of the program that fisheries that are in it and managers that are supporting it understand that this is about ensuring that the trend of these fishers into the future are on a healthy one with good biomass levels and good agreements that can be resilient in the face of climate change. And so that's where you're seeing this interplay between climate change and kind of static management systems that can't adapt and respond to actually what's playing out in terms of the ecological change as a result of climate change. Okay, so I'll end there, but I just want to say in terms of the responsibility of the sector, I think this is multi-sector. So, you know, it's not just about the supply chain strictly, but this is also about NGOs. It's about governments. Of course, it's about the private sector as well. And it's even about third-party verification systems like the MSC to help facilitate the conversations needed to ensure that we have adaptive, resilient management that can really ensure that total allowable catch, the tax, are set in line to what scientific institutions are advising. Could you just briefly touch on the reasons why the agreements couldn't be reached? Living in the UK and spending a bit of time at the seaside, I know there are a lot of mackerel there because they're the only thing I can catch. They're easy to catch. There's a lot of them there. It's a surprise that these aren't involved in, in the MSC or have fallen out. So what are the principal reasons for failure to reach an agreement? I think you have to be around the negotiating table to really understand why they failed to reach an agreement. And there's different theories as to why an agreement wasn't reached. Unfortunately, fisheries are one of those commodities where there's a lot of politicization around tax setting. Some of these fishing dominant nations, which are high governance, high information states, you know, so we are talking about some of the most well-managed fisheries in the world, really out of Norway and Iceland and places like that. So why can't they come to an agreement? So one might suggest that it is the fact that fishing dominant nations that have fishing as a kind of welfare state, the pharaohs is 25% of GDP, in the UK it's less than one. The skin in the game, I think, around, you know, ensuring that they get taxed to support their fisheries is probably fairly high. And so I think the prioritization around that, ensuring that they get a good outcome. And these are ministers that are in there around the negotiating table and heads of delegations. They want a fair outcome. You know, and I think that there is probably fair rationalization around that. So I think if you're, for example, a nation where you're seeing a, an abundance of mackerel coming into your waters, yet you don't have the quota to fish them, you're kind of faced with this dilemma. It's sort of tragedy of the commons, really. What do I do when actually fishing vessels are going, going out there catching all of this particular species, but they don't have the quota to actually, you know, bring them to market? So you end up getting this uh, mismatch between the quota allocation and catches. 
And this is happening in a lot of places right now. And we see this play out with the common fisheries policy as well under the relative stability key, where catches were actually set back in the 70s. But, you know, does that really reflect modern day harvesting practices? So you either have to have a good way of trading that quota between fisheries, or you have a bit of a reset on that quota allocation. So I think until something like that happens at the RFMO level, and perhaps that's something that NEF can help facilitate as well, looking at those quota allocation criteria, we might see this type of quota setting for quite some time yet. Fortunately, we do have some initiatives like uh, the North Atlantic Advocacy Group who are a kind of supply chain consortium looking to advocate to governments around driving these fisheries to a point where they can reach agreement. And I understand that they've just published a three-year policy FIP in this regard. So I think there are actions right now that are happening to try and get these fisheries in a position where they can reach an agreement. And should that be successful, then perhaps that could be a best practice example or case study that could be applied elsewhere where we're seeing this not just as something that's happening in the North Atlantic, but something that's actually happening globally, particularly right now in tuna fisheries and RFMOs. Let me turn to Dave Rob from Cargill. Same question to you then. What do you see from Cargill's perspective as the challenges associated with the changing climate in terms of fisheries? And what are you doing to address these individually and collectively with others in the fishing value chain? To build on the points that Erin's just made, Obviously, wild fisheries are highly affected by climate change and the management strategies around them. But also, we see that our other raw materials for aquaculture feeds will also be affected by climate change. We see the progression of crops, polewoods, north or south, depending which hemisphere you're in, with increasing temperatures. Extreme weather events as well, risk of those rising, in, so you'll get crop failures in certain regions at times. So there is absolutely a need to work across our supply chains to ensure that we have resilience through sustainable management of those supply chains. Fisheries is the most obvious one, but also the same approach with row crops as well, working towards regenerative agricultural processes to make sure that there's this crop cover on the ground to, to keep the soil in place, reducing emissions, but also making the soil more resilient against weather events. This really fits into Cargill's broader strategy to reduce our carbon emissions against science-based targets by 2030 for our scope three emissions, whilst also working on our scope one and two emissions with a science-based target again for 2025. But particularly in fisheries, I'd, I'd really like to talk a little bit about the points Erin just made as well. She talked a little bit about NAPA and working in the Northeast Atlantic. And I think we joined NAPA at the beginning of this year at the same time as we stopped purchasing blue whiting to try and put pressure on the regulators who are in the position of control, let's say, around opening, uh, finding a solution for this. And I think we've got to try something different here. There were six and there are now seven coastal nations involved in the mix with, with Britain having a separate seat in that now as well. And it is complex. And we see people looking at historical catches. We see people looking at current catches. And we need a framework to resolve that within the scientific recommendations. We're also involved in fishery improvement programs elsewhere to work particularly in, in some of the developing countries to start to build a fishery management plan, which will make the fishery resilient for that nation into the future. And in some places as well that are already looking at transitioning fisheries towards more direct human consumption as well, perhaps for fisheries that don't have a historical local consumption, but can provide a really good nutritional basis in that region, as well as for export uh, revenue to, to bring food to elsewhere in the world, whether it's through aquaculture or directly human consumption. 
as wild fishing stocks shift, is that a time where perhaps aquaculture is something that should come more to the fore? Is that something you're seeing in your supply chains? It's very clear the expectation is very large on the, for the growth of aquaculture. And FAO highlight that. WHO also highlight it for human nutrition and health. So aquaculture can bring a lot to the table, but it's got to be well managed. And we need those feed resources to be able to feed it, except for non-fed aquaculture, obviously. The expectation is there, but we've got to be able to manage its growth, supported through sustainable feed, supply, feed chain supplies and, of course, sustainable farming practices on the ground. Tracy, perhaps I can turn to you, Tai Union. For you, what are the challenges associated with the changing climate and how, how do you see the sector addressing these uh, effectively? I don't think I need to labour the points that Erin has made on the challenges it is for us as a brand when the stocks are shifting and through the biomass is healthy, but because of management and disputes over quota that they're no longer MSC certified and bringing the loss of that MSC logo on products, of course, raises questions with the consumer about whether it's sustainable still or not. And so you end up with this climate issue, this biological thing that's happening in the ocean, impacting right down to what the marketeers and our companies can promote as MSC certified and not. So we have those. And I think in terms of climate change, so for, for us at Thai Union, we're just relaunching our 2025 strategy. So extending our global sustainability strategy from our original 2016 to 2020 commitments and climate action really features quite prominently now and healthy planet and healthy oceans, healthy living is all part of that discussion, really tying it all together. And we contribute, we're part of the UN Global Compact. So really keying in and setting targets for me and for Thai Union that are science-based. And I'm quite sure Mark will talk in a moment about the importance of data. And that's really where I wanted to highlight on this point for us as a processor, the challenges around demonstrating tangible impacts that we're having. I mean, we do greenhouse gas reduction. We're down 70% from our factories and our operations, and we can produce good figures on water consumption and reduce waste to landfill. There's a whole plethora of things on top of the fisheries element that we've got to consider as a processor. So engaging with our suppliers, who are the fishing vessels and the farms that we source from, helping them to understand what demands are being put on us as really oper you know, operating in the middle part of the supply chain, because we're under pressure from our retailer and other brands that we supply into to support their reduction. And I think when I, we talk about human rights later, it will be a very similar thing I say, which is making sure that every part of the supply chain is clear about what it is they're able to do and drive and not duplicate. Because on one of your panels earlier, Ian, I heard one of the panelists say that actually the speed at which the different movers in the chain can implement some of these things. And for, for me, obviously, it's I'm more on the wild capture. Dave's on the, uh, you know, he can answer for aquaculture in a minute or more when we talk about net zero. But engaging with those fishing companies and how they measure their fuel efficiency. We understand that fuel efficiency is a big one for the fishing sector for reducing carbon footprint. But how I engage with them for effective reporting and actually not own 
their reductions. You know, obviously that's that's my scope three, but for them to take responsibility for which is in with their own, which and speaks to what your panelist earlier was talking about, everyone doing their own, doing it well, communicating it well up and down the chain will play a role in speeding this up and, and getting to deliver what we need to. Let me bring in Mark from the nature of conservancy. But let me put the same question to you. What are the challenges then associated with a changing climate for the seafood sector? And what do you think the sector needs to do to address those effectively? What we've heard Aaron and Dave and Tracy reflect are a couple of things that I want to highlight on. At the end of the day, the priority here is resilience. Changing climate is going to have really dramatic impacts, some of which we understand, some of which we don't on our oceans. And in order to be able to drive resilience, we need to be able to adapt and adapt much more nimbly, I would make the case, than we can today. And core to our ability to adapt is really to understand what's happening out on the water. There are no doubt critical political issues that arise in these transnational fisheries. And I do think that industry can have fairly significant impacts in driving productive outcomes, given that while these fisheries may be prosecuted you know, in a transboundary manner, they're ending up on the same kind of retailer shelves and in the same products, whether they're coming from one country or another. The challenge that I see is that when we look at climate, right, we've got this range of stressors on our oceans, acidification, warming, pollution. And in that context, we kind of overlay overfishing, high levels of bycatch of endangered, threatened, and protected species, and think of them as a threat multiplier. In order to address those challenges, we've got to get better data on the underlying science information. We need to kind of get the rules of the game right. And then the kind of compliance data that we need to have confidence that fishers are playing by those rules. And so organizations like the Nature Conservancy in partnership with countries, with industry, with, with Thai Union and others, are invested quite heavily in things like electronic monitoring on fishing vessels, right? Video cameras on boats to give us that really granular catch data, effort data to understand both the impacts that fisheries are having, but also to back out of that, you know, the changing dynamics in terms of overall ecosystem and fishery health. Because I think the world that we're looking at is one where supply chains are gonna have to shorten and we're gonna have to be making much more dynamic decisions, both in terms of procurement and management to adapt to this kind of changing landscape of consumer expectations, of market expectations, and then ultimately of kind of underlying resource health. Just on the data point, as straightforward as having cameras on boats, how then do you take that and get data from it? I mean, it seems it could become very labor intensive if you're simply gonna to have to look at cameras on boats, discover what's going on. I mean, that's a hugely labor intensive process. So is there any technology that can help speed that along? I think the good news in some sense, Ian, is that with electronic monitoring, kind of let's call it version one, what we have today, which in some sense has been around for a couple of decades, it has proven itself to be fit for purpose and cost effective. And generally the way that you manage turning this massive amount of raw video data into useful information on science and compliance is you audit it. You review five to 20% of that information in order to get a census of both, again, science and compliance data, supply chain verification. I think as we look to the future, we know that the same algorithms that Facebook and others apply to differentiate a photo of Tracy, Aaron, and Dave can be applied to fisheries data. It's not fundamentally a technology problem. And so I think what we're going to see is that electronic monitoring and tools like it are going to become faster, cheaper, and ultimately more useful. Today, the primary use of this data is risk mitigation and supply chains, right? Lots and lots of commitments have been made around social and environmental sustainability, lots of commitments around traceability. 
But at the end of the day, most of the problems that exist in the world are out on the water, out in the field. And if you're not verifying what's happening out on the water, it doesn't solve problems that exist. And, and so I think we're seeing tools like electronic monitoring viewed as really powerful verification tools, but also folks starting to look at the optionality around them. How do you monetize this data? How do you drive efficient supply chains? So I think big picture here, Ian, is it's workable today and kind of technology and software development is gonna make it quicker, cheaper, faster, more valuable through time. Last week, I caught up with Felicis Weber, Know the Chain Lead at the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre, a regular guest in the podcast, about the latest just-released benchmark of the big companies and brands in the apparel sector. So the reason you're back on the podcast is that Know the Chain have just released their latest apparel benchmark findings. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about or remind us what the Know the Chain benchmark is and what it aims to do? With the Know the Chain benchmarks, we focus on assessing companies' efforts to address forced labor risks across the different tiers of their supply chains. And we do that in high-risk sectors. So we are focusing predominantly on the electronic sector, on the food sector, and obviously on the apparel sector, which we're going to talk about today. And so we are publishing these benchmarks every two years, which allows us then to make a comparison over time. And we, at the moment, have 180 companies across those three sectors. So we're engaging with these companies on their efforts to address forced labor, but also engaging with a similar number of investors on their efforts to address those risks in their portfolios. So what are the headline results from the latest report? Right. So with our latest benchmark report, we looked at the 37 largest companies in the sector. And one of the things that was really disappointing for us was that the average score was only 41 out of 100. So 100 is the largest possible points. And at this 41 mark, we would have liked to see companies at least say, like, get to the 50 mark on average, given that we're not even looking at living wages. We're really just looking at our companies addressing some of the worst forms of exploitation. We're also seeing a very widespread of scores, ranging anything from 89 out of 100 to 3 out of 100. And that's something that we're really seeing across regions and across the different subsectors, this very wide range of scores. So some companies doing a lot, some companies not doing very much. One thing that's been really notable this year is that we had a large number of forced labor allegations. So we look at forced labor allegations in the public domain and then see how companies respond to those. And over half of the companies had allegations regarding forced labor in their supply chain. Some companies had up to four allegations. And those included forced labor in Xinjiang, for example, also included you know, forced labor in other Asian countries, but also included forced labor in Africa and in, in Europe, for example. So from quite a variety of places. And in addition to that, of course, we know the broader context at the moment where there have been numerous reports of unpaid wages in the sector, unpaid benefits. And yet our benchmark found that only 11% of the companies could show us at least two remedy outcomes for workers, and that in a situation where we have so many allegations. So that was one of the main findings. I think another thing that really stood out was the massive policy practice gap. So we've seen companies disclosing a lot of policies and processes, but then it typically was not quite clear what emerges from these processes. Are they effective? company, for example, has a risk assessment process, it's then though unclear what risks have been identified. A company might have migrant worker policies, but it's really unclear what comes out for migrant workers out of these policies. Just thinking quickly about what the difference between 89 out of 100 and 3 out of 100 is. So can you just characterise what a company needs to be doing to get a score of 89 out of 100? So a company that has 89 of 100, that it would have shown that it undertakes efforts not only in one sourcing country, but really across sourcing countries and also across their different supply chain tiers, right? So a company that has 3 out of 100 
Agba had is pretty much nothing in place, you know, maybe a commitment to address forced labor, but probably not even the policy levels. And a company that has 89 of 100 really shows us that they have policies and practices in place, but also shows us that these are effective, right? So that these lead to positive outcomes for workers and that these processes are in place, as I said, in different sourcing countries and across supply chain tiers. And this time you've highlighted worker-centric scores within the benchmark. So why have you done this and, and what do these show? The reason for that was that we've seen in, in this sector in particular how these top-down social auditing approaches have repeatedly failed to detect labour rights abuses, including forced labour. Clean Clothes Campaign, for example, had put out a report that detailed over 200 cases where you know audits failed to detect these cases. And we really feel that there is a need for more worker-centric due diligence that looks at root causes of forced labour, right? So that addresses structural inequalities between companies and workers that addresses the lack of worker power and also the lack of accountability when rights violations occur. So what we did for that reason is that we looked at those indicators that focused most strongly on worker participation. So for example, does a company have a formal agreement with a union or is a grievance mechanisms designed with workers? And also on those indicators that most strongly focused on outcomes for workers, so concrete outcomes such as Have workers been reimbursed recruitment fees? Do migrant workers now have access to unions or grievance mechanisms or healthcare, for example? So that's what we did. And what we found is that the scores are sadly and probably unsurprisingly significantly lower. So we actually only had one company that scored above the 50% mark and actually nearly half of the companies that scored zero which for us really shows that there is a long way to go to address those root causes and to take workers who are really the experts on the topic as such and build more worker-centric due diligence. Let's think about some of the specifics then. Which brands are the leaders and which brands are the laggards and how has this changed since the last benchmark? So at the top, we have Lululemon and Adidas, so companies from North America and Europe in the sports and leisure wear. Um, they've both been at the top already last year, although they changed their positions, but really both further build out their leadership position compared to other companies. They're the only two that score above 75 out of 100, and they really show all the elements that I've highlighted before, right? So they show concrete outcomes for workers. They show that they're taking action in lower tiers. They show that they work on responsible recruitment, for example, across different countries. Now, if we look at the bottom, one thing that was noticeable that luxury companies scoring significantly lower than apparel retailers or footwear companies and We actually have seen some companies moving up, such as Hermes, for example, but others, Prada stands out in particular, that's really still at the bottom and has remained at the bottom since 2016. Which brands have significantly improved then and what characterises the improvements have made? So one thing, first of all, maybe to say that actually all companies have improved at least a very tiny bit, which is really exciting, which is positive. And one of the things that was really positive to see this year that we've seen strong improvement from Asian companies. So for example, Pao Chen, which is a footwear manufacturer in Taiwan and supplier to companies like Adidas or Nike, they've improved by just actually looking at their supply chain at all, right? So adopting a very baseline sort of supplier code that prohibits forced labor, but then also really training their staff, training their suppliers, um, assessing their suppliers, supporting suppliers and setting up grievance mechanisms. And similar in Japan, we've also seen good progress from companies that really focused in on specifically ensuring that migrant workers have access to grievance mechanisms, looking how they can implement responsible recruitment mechanisms, but also being much more transparent about where they're sourcing from, including when it comes to lower tier suppliers. 
And maybe just to mention, I think some of the drivers here that we've seen is certainly some pressure from buyers, but then also always companies, you know, start to act once there are concrete allegations regarding those companies. And then I think also legislation and, you know, some of the action we've seen in the US, for example, is certainly helping to drive action. Just on that point, what are the key lessons to learn from those performing best for the others? So what are the key lessons for, for people that aren't doing well? What, can, what are the key lessons they can learn from the brands that are performing best? I think one of the things was really to start from the beginning with really thinking through how can you make your due diligence efforts more worker-centric and really talk to workers, <laughs> develop those processes with them, ensure they play a central part in that. And then also look at, are, are any policies and processes that you have, are they actually effective? Are they leading for the outcomes that you want for women workers, for migrant workers, right? And then once you've established that they are working, then ensure that they're implemented across systematically. So across sourcing countries and across supply chain tiers, um, and also be transparent about those efforts. You mentioned earlier that uh, the luxury sector is doing particularly badly. So can you just characterize a bit more detail the performance of luxury brands versus mainstream brands? It certainly did stand out as a subsector, you know, compared to footwear companies, compared to apparel retailers that scored significantly lower. Um, I think what's still important to highlight that even within the luxury sector, we've seen quite a spread of scores, right? So someone like Burberry that scored higher within that sector has actually demonstrated that they're repaying fees to workers, monitoring their lower tier suppliers, looking at working conditions and cashmere sourcing. On the other hand, there's companies such as Prada that that really haven't improved at all. One thing we also noticed that, you know, we looked also to what extent companies are sourcing materials that may be made with forced labor and actually luxury brands have or disclosing sourcing a higher number of such materials, right? So all of the companies we looked at, all of them source cashmere, source cotton, source silk, source viscose and wool, some even rubber, yet most of them say nothing as to where are these materials coming from in the first place? And then how are they addressing potential risks? One of the reasons certainly why we're seeing these lower scores is just that the pressure on those types of companies hasn't been there for the same amount of time than for other companies, but certainly also just an unwillingness to be transparent about both where they're sourcing from, but also about then actually taking efforts, which to some extent is still linked to the fact that a lot of them perceive some of their sourcing countries as lower risk. But um, unfortunately, we've seen also say like in Italy, levels of abuse of migrant workers in the apparel sector. And from the companies that are transparent, we've actually seen that across their supply chain tiers, they're sourcing from pretty much anywhere in the world. So there is really no excuse for those companies not to step up. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That you'd expect that luxury and brands would be doing much more in this area. But I think perhaps consumers are totally aware when they buy cheap clothing that there's potential risks there and perhaps they, they pursue mass market brands a bit more in this, whereas they maybe they see that when they're spending a little bit more, they expect everything to be dealt with. So in some respects, the luxury brands are running a significant reputational risk. Is that something you think might come into your next benchmark? The fact that you know, maybe consumers will catch up with the fact that uh, the luxury brands where they're spending lots of money are not ones who are performing well on these human rights issues? Yeah, certainly. I think there is increasing consumer awareness. And I think that's certainly something we're seeing. Also, 
given a number of those are headquartered in Europe, there's increasingly there's mandatory human rights due diligence legislation. I think we've also just in our next benchmark, I think one of the things we're trying to do is really having strong clusters of companies from each of the subsectors, from each of the regions and countries. So, you know, we'll probably also look at a greater sample of luxury companies. And I think the more comparison we have within that, the better we can also drive change and really compare them to their peers and show what good practice within their sector looks like. Because as I said, some of them actually are taking greater action. So I do hope that the rest of the sector really takes it to heart and is catching up. Anything else you expect to see next time? We very much hope to see much more worker-centric efforts and companies really taking to heart that they need to ultimately address those power imbalances both between buyers and suppliers and really look at their purchasing practices, but then also between companies and workers and ensure that workers can exercise their right to freedom of association, can access effective grievance mechanisms and really address those underlying drivers of forced labor. That's something I hope to see. <laughs> Not sure we will, but I, I really very much hope so. Well, I guess it'd be interesting to see how the luxury sector responds into the next benchmark. And also, as you said, it's great to see that everybody seems to have improved a little bit. So perhaps continual improvement will be in evidence next time as well. But for now, Felicity Weber from the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre, thank you very much indeed. Thanks so much, Ian. That's all for this week. Don't forget to go to the Innovation Forum website for all the usual analysis and podcasts and to take advantage of the launch discounts for the Climate Change Action and the Future for Plastics conferences in the autumn. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh. Until next week, goodbye.